0: Section 10 of the Watergate Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Dennison, Portland, Maine. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 1. Section 10. Section 3. Recommendations Recommendation 1. The Committee recommends that Congress enact legislation to establish a permanent office of public attorney, which would have jurisdiction to prosecute criminal cases in which there is a real or apparent conflict of interest within the executive branch. The public attorney would also have jurisdiction to inquire into, with power to gain access to executive records, the status and progress of complaints and criminal charges concerning matters pending in or involving the conduct of federal departments and regulatory agencies. The public attorney would be appointed for a fixed term, e.g., five years, be subject to Senate confirmation and be chosen by members of the judicial branch to ensure his independence from executive control or influence. In each of the nation's two major scandals during the past half-century, Teapot Dome and Watergate, the appointment of a special prosecutor was essential to preserve the integrity of the criminal justice system and public confidence in the rule of law. In both situations, the office was created after serious abuses had occurred. The evidence gathered by the select committee indicates that unmonitored executive, investigative, and prosecutorial agencies may be reluctant to expose wrongdoing in the executive branch. It is thus essential that an independent public attorney's office be created to investigate and prosecute where conflicts of interest in the executive branch exist. This Office should be given power to inquire fully into corruption in the Executive Branch and have access to all records relating to such corruption. The operations of the current Special Prosecution Force demonstrate the effective role such an entity can play. The preventative role this Office could fulfill must be emphasized. Permanent status for this Office could help ensure responsible action by executive branch officials who have primary responsibility to administer and enforce the law. Indeed, it is reasonable to speculate that the existence of a public attorney's office might have served as a deterrent against some of the wrongful acts that comprise the Watergate scandal. Because of this preventative role, it is unwise to wait until another national crisis to reinstitute the office of special prosecutor. It is far better to create a permanent institution now than to consider its wisdom at some future time, when emotions may be high and unknown political factors at play. The public attorney we recommend would not be only a, quote, special prosecutor, unquote, but an ombudsman having power to inquire into the administration of justice in the executive branch. With a power of access to executive records, he could appropriately respond to complaints from the public the Congress, the courts, and other public and private institutions. If he became aware of misconduct in the executive branch, he could assume the role of special prosecutor. The public attorney should also be required to make periodic reports to Congress on the affairs of his office and the need for new legislation within his jurisdiction, a function that should be of great assistance to the relevant Congressional Oversight Committees. The attorney general should find such an office advantageous in cases involving charges against administration officials or persons otherwise close to high executive officers, particularly where a proper exercise of discretion not to prosecute would give rise to public suspicion of cover-up. Such cases could be referred by the attorney general to the public attorney. The Public Attorney would also have jurisdiction to prosecute all criminal cases referred to it by the Federal Elections Commission, which is elsewhere recommended in this report. It is not anticipated that there would be substantial jurisdictional disputes between the Justice Department and the Public Attorney. The statute establishing the Public Attorney should grant him discretionary jurisdiction in any situation where there is a reasonable basis, to conclude that a conflict of interest exists. He should have exclusive jurisdiction over criminal cases referred to him by the Federal Elections Commission. As to cases where a jurisdictional dispute cannot be resolved, provision should be made for special judicial determination on an expedited basis. Deciding such jurisdictional disputes would be well within the competence of the courts, for the question would primarily be one of statutory interpretation the present immunity statute would have to be amended to allow the independent prosecutor to grant use immunity without the consent of the attorney-general the procedure by which the public attorney obtains immunity should be made similar to that applicable to congressional requests for immunity the attorney-general would be informed of an immunity request but he could only delay the immunity not prevent it Similarly, the Attorney General would inform the public attorney of his immunity decisions. The public attorney would have the power to delay, not prevent, immunity. To guarantee true independence from the executive branch, the public attorney should be appointed for a fixed term, e.g., five years. He should be removable only by the appointing authority, described below, for gross improprieties because it is highly important that the special prosecutor act solely in the interest of justice and not for personal benefit he should be ineligible for appointment or election to federal office for a period of two years after his term expires or he resigns or is removed crucial to the independence of the public attorney is the appointing authority if the appointing authority is vested in the president or the attorney general Who is responsible to the president, the appearance of political influence would remain even if the public attorney has an extended tenure. The argument in favor of presidential appointment is that criminal prosecution is an executive function and there is a presumption of regularity respecting the exercise of presidential power that should not be disregarded because of the unique abuses of Watergate but Watergate at least teaches that the abuse of power must be anticipated. The Committee's recommendation that responsibility for appointment of the public attorney should rest with the judicial rather than with the executive would establish a check against future abuse of power. The Constitution allows the vesting of the appointment power in others besides the chief executive. Article 2, Section 2, Paragraph 2, Clause 2 provides the Congress may, by law, vest the appointment of such inferior officers, as they think proper, in the President alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. The few cases interpreting this clause support a plan by which the public attorney is appointed by the courts of law. The leading case is Ex parte Zeibold, 100, U.S. 371, 1879. Congress, pursuant to the Enforcement Acts of 1870 and 1871, vested the appointment of election supervisors in the circuit courts. The Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of this appointment power, observing that there could be other appointments which Congress might want a court to make, such as a marshal. The marshal is preeminently the officer of the courts apparently the only limitation on the court's appointment power is that the office involved must not be of such incongruity to the judicial function as to excuse the court's from performance of the appointing function or to render their acts void since a prosecutor is more an officer of the court than a marshal or election supervisor it is difficult to contend that the appointment of a public attorney is quote, incongruous unquote, to the judicial function. The District Court for the District of Columbia relied heavily on Ex Parti Seibold in upholding the constitutionality of a provision of the D.C. Code, which required the members of the Board of Education to be appointed by the judges of that court. Hobson v. Hansen, 265, F. Sup., 902, D.D.C. 1967, the Court read the congruity requirement of Ex parte Seibold narrowly. The limitation which is referred to in Seibold is not an affirmative requirement that the duty of the officer be related to the administration of justice. It is a negative requirement that the duty may not have quote, such incongruity unquote, with the judicial function as would void the power sought to be conferred in short given the clear congruity between the public attorney's tasks and the judicial function it should be constitutional for the congress to vest the appointment power in the judicial branch see also rice v. ames one eighty u s three seventy one nineteen o one congress has power to authorize circuit courts to appoint commissioners to handle extradition matters russell v. thomas twenty one fed cases twelve 162, 1874. Congress has power to authorize courts to appoint U.S. commissioners of insolvency. Birch versus Steele, 165, F. 577, Fifth Circuit, 1908. Congress has power to authorize courts to appoint referees in bankruptcy. While it is thus constitutional to vest the appointment of a public attorney in the judicial branch, The question remains as to what part of the judicial branch should have this power. It would be a safer constitutional scheme if the appointing authority were in no way involved in hearing the cases to be prosecuted by the public attorney. If a district judge, for example, was directly responsible for appointing a public attorney to prosecute certain individuals before that same district judge, questions respecting an appearance of partiality and the lack of due process might be raised in hobson v hanson two sixty five f sup nine o two d d c nineteen sixty seven the court recognized possible due process problems but stated that the official act of participating in the selection of board members does not in and of itself preclude on due process grounds the ability of the judge to decide fairly the merits of litigation challenging the validity of the performance by a board member of his duties as such if in a particular case such a challenge were made its soundness on due process grounds would depend on the circumstances bearing thereon and not on the mere fact that the judge had performed the duty reposed upon him by congress in section 31 to 101 265 f sup 918 the possible problems raised in Homson were also discussed in united states versus solomon 216 f sup 835 sdny 1963 the solomon court upheld the validity of 28 usc section 506 now 28 U.S.C. section 546, which permitted the District Court to appoint a U.S. attorney when a vacancy occurs to serve until that vacancy is filled by the President. But the Court emphasized that the judicial appointment was temporary in holding that the statutory scheme for the temporary appointment by the judiciary of the U.S. attorney comports in all respects with due process of law." The court was apparently concerned that if it also had the power to remove the prosecutor it appointed, there might be a, quote, nexus between court and prosecutor too close to comport with due process, unquote. Although the concerns expressed in Solomon were dictum, it would be the wiser course to avoid an appointment procedure that would involve active judges who might hear cases brought by a prosecutor they appointed and could remove. To avoid these constitutional problems and to create an office of public attorney that is not only truly independent, but also appears truly independent, the Congress should vest the appointment power as follows. The Chief Justice should be given the power and duty to select three retired circuit court judges who, in turn, would appoint the public attorney. After the Chief Justice makes the initial appointment of the three circuit court judges, his responsibilities would be ended. The three retired circuit court judges, who would not sit on any cases, either at trial or in an appellate capacity, in which the public attorney's office was involved, would make the actual appointment, which would be subject to confirmation by the Senate. The public attorney could be removed only by the three retired circuit court judges, and only upon a finding of gross improprieties. At the end of the five-year period, the Chief Justice would appoint or reappoint three retired circuit court judges and they, in turn, would choose a new public attorney, or reappoint the outgoing public attorney for one additional term only. Although Canon Five of the Code of Judicial Conduct discourages extrajudicial assignments in controversial matters, it does permit assignments dealing with the administration of justice. Thus, the acceptance of an appointment by a senior judge to a public attorney supervisory committee would be permissible under the canons. A senior judge accepting the appointment would not receive any additional salary because of such service. Recommendation 2 The Committee recommends that, in connection with its revision of the Federal Criminal Code, Congress should treat as a separate federal offense with separate penalties any felony defined in the Code, except those felonies that specifically relate to federal elections, that is committed with the purpose of interfering with or affecting the outcome of a federal election or nominating process. The purpose of this proposal is primarily to establish, as a separate federal crime, the commission of certain traditionally common law offenses, such as burglary and larceny, where these crimes are committed with the intent of interfering with or affecting a federal election or nominating process. To understand this proposal, it is necessary to comprehend the workings of the three main proposed revisions of the Criminal Code now before Congress. H.R. 10047, the Brown Commission proposal, S. 1400, the Administration's proposal, and 1. The proposal of the staff of the Criminal Procedure Subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Each of these proposals would make certain traditional common law offenses, usually prosecutable only in the state courts, federal offenses in certain circumstances, for example, if the victim is a federal public servant or if the property that is the subject of the offense is federally owned. Each proposal defines the various common law crimes, that will become federal crimes triable in federal courts in the proper circumstances. In each case, the list is lengthy. As noted, the proposal the committee offers is to make various common law crimes federal offenses prosecutable in federal courts when the offenses are conducted with the intent to interfere with or affect a federal election. It would thus add another jurisdictional base for the federal courts to those already suggested by the existing revisions, for example, that the crime is against a federal employee. The proposal also establishes a separate offense all other violations of federal criminal law except those laws that specifically relate to federal elections, where the offense is committed with intent to interfere with or affect a federal election or nominating process. The committee feels that the amendment it proposes is needed. Under existing law, the DNC burglary and the break-in of Dr. Fielding's office could not be tried in a U.S. district court under a burglary indictment. The defendants in the fielding break-in matter were prosecuted on conspiracy and perjury counts. Adoption of the above proposal would not add redundancy to the criminal law. Rather, it would allow the prosecution of crimes in which there is a federal interest in federal courts, and it would allow the prosecutor to present an election-related offense to the jury in proper perspective, that is, as an attempt to violate the integrity of a federal election or nominating process. Such a statute would carry appropriate penalties to indicate the gravity of corrupt interference with the federal electoral process, for example, a fine up to $25,000 and or imprisonment up to five years. Recommendation 3. The Committee recommends that Congress enact legislation making it unlawful for any employee in the executive office of the President or assigned to the White House directly or indirectly to authorize or engage in any investigative or intelligence-gathering activity concerning national or domestic security not authorized by Congress. The evidence received concerning the establishment, by direction of the President, of a special investigative unit in the White House, the Plumbers, and the operations of the Plumbers, illustrates the danger to individual rights presented by such secret investigative activity. By statute, Congress has already established various professional investigative agencies to serve the Executive's legitimate investigative needs. For example, the CIA, the FBI, the Secret Service. These bodies are wisely restricted in their jurisdiction and authority by stringent statutory provisions, and are answerable not only to the executive, but also to special oversight committees of Congress. Thus, our free society is served, not controlled, by its police agencies. No president should be allowed to circumvent these agencies and erect a secret White House investigative operation, such as the Plumbers, not subject to statutory controls and congressional oversight. If any agency charged with investigative efforts is deficient, the president should reform it, not create a substitute. Under the proposed recommendation, it would be a criminal offense for anyone in the White House or the Executive Office of the President to perform investigative or police functions relating to internal or national security matters, unless existing statutory law already authorizes such functions, as with the Secret Service. Similarly, it would be legal for anyone in the Executive Office of the President or on the White House staff to employ any person to conduct such functions. Recommendation 4. The Committee recommends that the appropriate Congressional Oversight Committees should more closely supervise the operations of the intelligence and law enforcement community. In particular, these committees should continually examine the relations between federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies and the White House and promptly determine if any revision of law is necessary relating to the jurisdiction or activities of these agencies from its beginning the central intelligence agency has been prohibited from performing police and internal security functions within the united states thus fifty u s c section four o three d three explicitly provides that the agency shall have no police subpoena law enforcement powers, or internal security functions. Notwithstanding this clear and longstanding prohibition, the Select Committee produced evidence that the White House sought and achieved CIA aid for the plumbers and unsuccessfully sought to involve the CIA in the Watergate cover-up. These efforts on the part of the White House underline the need for constant and vigorous congressional oversight. The congressional committees charged with the responsibility for the CIA should thus consider the need for hearings to determine if more explicit statutory language would be useful to restrain the CIA to its legitimate sphere of operation. As for law enforcement agencies, testimony of the former acting director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Patrick Gray, and others regarding White House attempts to interfere with the FBI's investigation of the Watergate affair, as well as evidence received by the committee as to efforts by the White House to influence IRS operations, indicate that similar oversight functions should be strengthened with regard to the FBI, IRS, and other similar agencies. Recommendation 5. The committee recommends that Congress amend 1. false declaration prohibition of 18 U.S.C. section 1623 to make it equally applicable to Congressional proceedings under oath 2. Section 1621 of Title 18 to provide that once the oath has been properly administered by a congressman in a public or private congressional hearing, it is not a defense to a perjury charge that subsequently a quorum was absent or no congressman was present when the perjurious statement was made. 1. The False Declaration Prohibition of 18 U.S.C. Section 1623C in effect provides that to sustain a perjury conviction regarding statements made under oath to a court or grand jury, or in a civil deposition, the government must only show that two statements made under oath in any of these forums are inconsistent. This provision should be made equally applicable to Congressional proceedings under oath. There is no policy justification for granting proceedings in other forums a greater protection from perjury than given Congressional investigations. 2. Under Section 1621 of Title 18, as interpreted by the courts, it appears that conviction for perjury before a Congressional body will not lie in the absence of a quorum when the offending statement was made, see Christoffel v. United States 338 U.S. 84, 1949, which concerned a House subcommittee and the analogous District of Columbia perjury statute, D.C. Code, Section 22 to 2501. The select committee has found it necessary to conduct numerous executive sessions under oath where a senator was not present for the entire hearing to require a senator or congressman to be present at all times during executive sessions stifles vigorous far-reaching investigations because there is simply not enough congressional time available. Section 1621 of Title eighteen should thus be amended to provide that in regard to a perjury charge relating to congressional's testimony under oath, it is not a defense that there was no quorum or no congressman present when the perjurious statement was made. When a witness has been placed under oath, he is on fair notice that his testimony must be truthful. A civil litigant can depose a witness under penalty of perjury without a judge present, and the law should not require that, in order to sustain a perjury charge regarding congressional testimony, a congressman be present. The fact that a congressman is required to place a witness under oath should provide Ample Protection Against Possible Harassment by Staff Investigators 2 U.S.C. Section 191, Oath to Witnesses The present recommendation is not intended to require a witness to answer questions when a quorum of the Congressional Committee is not present. It relates only to a witness who has been sworn when a quorum is present and who chooses to respond to questions in the absence of a quorum. Recommendation 6 The Committee recommends that the Congress refrain from adopting proposed revisions of Title 18, which would unjustifiably broaden the present defenses to criminal charges of official mistake of law and execution of public duty. The Committee supports the predominant rule of law adopted in the American Law Institute's Model Penal Code that any reliance on a mistake of law or superior orders must be objectively reasonable to constitute a valid defense. There are several proposals before the Congress, H.R. 10047, sections 521 and 532, and S.1, sections 303 and 1 to 306b, which would expand the present common law defense of official mistake of law and execution of public duty. Under existing law, a public official who can show that conduct taken in the course of his duties resulted from an objectively reasonable mistake of law or reliance upon superior orders has a valid defense to a criminal charge relating to that conduct. See Perkins on Criminal Law, 2, ed. 1969, pages 921-2. to The proposed drafts would apparently erect as a defense to a criminal charge a subjective good-faith reliance by a public official on an official grant of permission or interpretation of the law. Under the proposals, it appears that the defense would still lie even if the official grant of permission or interpretation of the law were oral and secret. These proposed revisions were drafted before the Select Committee's hearings, which presented substantial relevant evidence bearing on this issue. The Select Committee rejects the broadening of this defense incorporated in the proposals now before Congress. The Committee recognizes that the proposed revisions are based on extensive studies of the present criminal law that range far beyond the scope of the Committee's own investigation. However, based on its experience, the committee believes that the present law, as reflected in the American Law Institute's Model Penal Code, is adequate to meet all legitimate claims of official mistake of law or public duty and should not be expanded. Recommendation 7. The committee recommends that the appropriate committees of Congress study and reconsider Title Three of the Omnibus Crime and Safe Streets Act of 1968, for the purpose of determining whether the electronic surveillance provisions contained in that act require revision or amendment. The committee's investigation has revealed incidents of unlawful violations of privacy through electronic surveillance, some of which were committed directly or indirectly under the auspices of the entities of government in whose trust Congress placed the protection of privacy by the provisions of Title III of the Safe Streets Act of 1968. The restrictions contained in that Act have proved inadequate to protect individuals against unjustified invasions of privacy. A thorough reevaluation of this legislation, including a factual investigation of federal wiretapping practices, is necessary. Under the 1968 Act, a special commission was to be appointed by the President five years after the effective date of the Act. The President has now appointed this commission for the purpose of evaluating the strengths and deficiencies of this legislation. However, the committee believes that in light of the facts revealed in its investigation of a scandal in the executive branch unforeseen by Congress when it enacted the 1968 Act, it is essential that the appropriate committees of Congress make their own investigations and evaluations of the experience under the new federal electronic eavesdropping law. It appears to be inappropriate to rely solely on a presidential commission which must report to the same administration under which violations of privacy took place. An important issue for consideration is whether national security electronic surveillance should require prior court approval. Both the Supreme Court and the Congress have left this matter unresolved. In United States v. U.S. District Court 407, U.S. 297, 1972, The court firmly rejected the government's claim that warrantless electronic searches in domestic security cases were a reasonable exercise of presidential power. Justice Lewis Powell's opinion for a unanimous Supreme Court concluded that prior judicial approval is required for domestic security surveillance. The issue arose in a case in which the Attorney General had authorized wiretaps To gather intelligence information deemed necessary to protect the nation from attempts of domestic organizations to attack and subvert the existing structure of the government." The Court said that although the Fourth Amendment's requirement of a warrant before a search is not absolute, the prior judgment of an independent magistrate is the norm. Fourth Amendment freedoms cannot be properly guaranteed if domestic security surveillances may be conducted solely Within the discretion of the executive branch. Although Justice Powell carefully limited his opinion to the domestic aspects of national security and expressed no opinion on the issues which may be involved with respect to activities of foreign powers or their agents, he did state, Nor do we believe prior judicial approval will fracture the secrecy essential to official intelligence gathering judges may be counted upon to be especially conscious of security requirements in national security cases." Unquote. But see Laird v. Tatum, 408 U.S. 1, 1972, in which the Supreme Court, 5-4, failed to find a justificable controversy so as to permit a decision on the merits of the Army's surveillance of civilian political activity. In view of the fact that the Court has left unanswered the question whether warrants are necessary with respect to intelligence regarding foreign activities, it is clear that Congress should address itself to the question whether prior judicial approval should be required for all wiretaps and other electronic surveillance. The Select Committee so recommends. In the wiretap case just discussed, Justice Powell suggested that, quote, Congress may wish to consider protective standards for foreign intelligence wiretaps which differ from those already prescribed for specified crimes in Title III of the 1968 Crime Control Act. Different standards may be compatible with the Fourth Amendment if they are reasonable both in relation to the legitimate need of government for intelligence information and the protected rights of our citizens." While the Supreme Court has not ruled on the validity of warrantless wiretaps not involving U.S. citizens to achieve foreign intelligence, at least two courts of appeals have held that such surveillance does not violate the Fourth Amendment. See United States v. Brown, 484, F. 2D, 418, Fifth Circuit, 1973, and United States v. Dellinger, 472, F. 2D. 340, Seventh Circuit, 1972. There is no justification totally to prohibit the executive from conducting such surveillance, but when it is done within the United States, it is preferable that a warrant be obtained prior to the wiretap. Congress should take cognizance of Justice Powell's invitation to the wiretap case and address itself to this issue. Suitable legislation should establish procedures permitting the courts under designated standards to authorize surveillance of foreign powers. A basic standard that could be employed is whether there is reason to believe that information of importance to the nation's security would be obtained. To obviate possible disclosure of such activities, Congress could establish special procedures to be followed. This could be done easily and effectively by a provision that all such warrants be issued by a single judge, perhaps the chief judge of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. Staff work could be performed by the Department of Justice so that only the judge himself need see the warrant and supporting material. And special procedures should be established to protect the rights of American citizens who might be overheard. In net, the need is for prior judicial approval under guidelines that will protect national security. There should be no constitutional barrier to such legislation. As Justice White said in his concurring opinion in the Wiretap case, quote, The United States does not claim that Congress is powerless to require warrants for surveillance which the President otherwise would not be barred by the Fourth Amendment from undertaking without a warrant, unquote in fact the wiretap case is a direct holding by the supreme court that congress can limit the executive's power to tap without a warrant in a footnote to justice white's opinion he indicated that the justice department speaking through assistant attorney general robert mardian accepted the view that congress does have such power end of section ten